It's very easy to become upset uh, when you're in the midst of a trial. And like a cup, if a cup is upset, turned upside down, it can't be filled. Your focus is, is someplace else. But if a cup is turned upright, it can be filled. So um, you want to keep, when you're in the midst of a trial, you want to keep your cup upright so it can be filled, and you want to keep your, your focus on Christ. But if you keep your focus on Christ, you will find solid ground for the ups and downs. That was Larry Wing sharing a wonderful illustration that God showed him. Welcome to B-Sides. This episode is called Grounded, and it follows one of the longest sermons I've done in a while, some 70 minutes, from 2 Kings chapters 1-13 through 13, called Solid Ground for the Ups and Downs. So in this episode, we will be exploring ways of being grounded. In part one, we'll discuss the seven pathways to being grounded in God. There isn't just one. Not everyone connects with God the same way. And it's an incredibly liberating thing to discover your pathways. In part two, we will hear from those who have contributed the ways that they find solid ground in the ups and downs. In part three, we will hear from yours truly, the way that I enjoy finding my solid ground. And in part four, we will take a look at 2 Kings chapter 3 about digging ditches. Talk about being grounded. Go dig some dirt. Now as we do, I'm going to summarize this message in 30 seconds or less. In 2 Kings chapters 1-13, through 13, we see a lot of ups and downs. It begins with the king of Israel falling down, and then Elijah, the prophet, being caught up in a whirlwind. And so we have lots of whirlwinds in life where we experience the ups and downs. The question is, do we end up down or up? Do we have solid ground? Naaman, the Syrian general, believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and as a token to go home, he takes dirt. He found his grounding. I love the name and talk, taking dirt as he went home. He knew he was going into a sticky situation. He had a lot to learn. He was going to a pagan society and he helped the king worship their pagan god. What do you do? Like He can't just literally stop life. He has to keep going. He has to grow into this new experience. And Elisha, the prophet, doesn't see fit to teach him all the right ways yet. He's like, you know what? He's going to get this. I just need to help him get grounded. And for Naaman, it was literally taking some ground with him, some dirt from the soil of Israel. And this is our theme. How do we find our solid ground? Where are we grounded? What are the ways that we do this? And I love that Naaman took a physical component with him. And that's what it seems. In hearing some of the things that will be shared, it seems that a lot of us have a balance between the spiritual and the physical, that the body and the soul need harmony. And so we seek solid ground in a variety of ways. May you reflect on how you find your solid ground for the ups and downs as we explore in this episode. Part one, the seven pathways. Something I've learned recently is that there are seven ways that we can be grounded with God. 
And this is really cool because sometimes we're told over and over by someone that we have to do this to connect with God when really it's not working out for you because really you were made to enjoy another pathway. There isn't one way like just reading your Bible. There are seven ways we can be grounded in God. And I want you to hear these because as we hear some of the examples later in the show about how others find their grounding in God, you won't have to feel like you have to be like them because they may represent one of these pathways and you represent another one. One thing to clarify before we go into them is that no one is really reduced to one pathway with God. You can be grounded in a few of these, but you will also recognize that there's a few of these that you simply have no connection with and you don't find your solid ground in these. So I'm going to read these to you and uh, please listen and have a sense of which of these pathways help you find solid ground for the ups and downs. So I'm going to read to you what I have found. The first pathway is the relational pathway. And in the Bible, Peter is an example of this pathway. Spiritual growth comes most naturally when you are involved with people and God speaks to you through significant relationships. You love to be around others and time alone can drive you crazy. You may even be a small group junkie. A biblical example is the Apostle Peter. Peter came to Jesus with others, and he was part of the inner circle with James and John. The defining moments of his life, his decision to follow Christ, his confession of Jesus as Messiah, his denial of Christ, and his restoration, all took place in a relational context. Second, the intellectual pathway. The Apostle Paul. You draw close to God as you are able to learn more about him. You are a thinker, and you come alive in a class or with a great book because the road to your heart is through your head. The study of scripture and theology comes naturally to you. The Apostle Paul had an intellectual pathway. He told of studying with Gamaliel, one of the great Jewish scholars of his day. After his conversion, Paul went into the synagogues and reasoned from scripture and debated with the philosophers in Athens. Third, the worship pathway. King David. You have a deep love of corporate praise and celebration. You may not even be an outgoing person, but during worship, you open your heart and enthusiastically participate. A corporate praise service is the most healing experience you can have with your God. King David is an example of someone who had a worship pathway. He danced in the streets with all his heart, and he wrote psalms and poetry to God to express his love. Fourth, the activist pathway. Nehemiah. Activists have single-minded zeal and a strong sense of vision. You have a passion to build the church and work for justice in the world. You also work to bring out the potential that God has placed in others. Nehemiah was an activist. He was troubled and depressed when he heard that Jerusalem was in ruins. He prayed, and then he told the king, Here's the problem. These are my plans. 
Here is a list of what I need from you. When can I start? With an activist, prayer and action go hand in hand. Fifth, the contemplative pathway, the two Marys. You love uninterrupted time alone with God. No distractions. And oftentimes, busyness or spending a lot of time with people can drain you. Martha's sister, Mary, was contemplative. She didn't care about housework. She just wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also contemplative. She didn't speak much, but stored up these things in her heart. Sixth, the service pathway. Dorcas. If this is you, God's presence seems most tangible when you are helping others. You connect with God when you are serving. You would much rather serve than be served. An example of a server in the Bible is Dorcas, who is described in Acts as a woman known for her deeds. And seventh, the creation pathway. Jesus. You respond deeply to God through his creation. Being outdoors replenishes you, moves your heart, opens your souls, and strengthens your faith. You drink God in through your senses and are often creative yourself. Perhaps the best example of this pathway is Jesus. Of course, he exemplifies every pathway. But the Bible portrays Jesus as being especially drawn to nature. He often withdrew from others to be outdoors, going to a lake or the mountains or the wilderness to be with his father. He always wanted to be in nature and often used things of nature in his teachings, which is not surprising when he created it. So which of those seven pathways grounds you? Part two, how others find their solid ground in the ups and downs. And now here are some of the ways that others find their grounding in God, as submitted to me through email. Michael Beavers says, I find my best strategy for being grounded is biblical meditation, which for me is best done in a jacuzzi. I love the promises in scripture associated with meditation. Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 119 verses 97 to 99, Psalm 77 verse 12, Proverbs chapter 4 verses 20 to 22, Psalm chapter 19, Colossians 3 verse 16, and 1 Timothy 4 13 through 15. But many other passages also have meditation as a theme, if one knows where to look. For example, Psalm 27. And here are just a few verses. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. 
You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. My particular strategies include recitation out loud, a la Churchill, utilizing a prompter app on my iPad, using the version app as a Bible reader out loud, Some of the sweetest devotional times of my life have been in the context of these sorts of meditation. Billy Bueller relates how she finds solid ground for the ups and downs through a story. Mr. and Mrs. White lived across the street from my Nana in the tiny town of Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. My Nana permitted my sister and I to cross the one-way street and visit the Whites. We stood against the rail of the porch, and Mr. White would hold us captive with stories that stuck in my head for days after hearing them. Fantastic tales of men who were swallowed by whales, fought giants, and built boats big enough to house every animal walking the earth. I was hooked on his storytelling prowess, his sweet smile, and his brilliant white hair. And his wife looked at my sister and I as though she wanted to put us permanently onto her lap and hold us close. One night, while laying half awake, I felt someone seat themselves at the foot of the bed I shared with my sister. Turning to see who it could be, I was surprised to find Mr. White. My Nana wouldn't be happy that I had a guest in the home, I thought in a panic. But Mr. White leaned closer and stretched out his hand toward me. It was then that I saw he held a Bible, and the words he spoke resound in my head now some forty years later. You be sure and read this book. Glancing away briefly, I tapped my sleeping sister. Betsy, look, Mr. White is here, I said, laughing at the very idea of it. When I looked back, Mr. White was gone. Betsy grumbled something inaudibly, but I just sat staring at the place where my friend had been sitting. At the breakfast table the following morning, my Nana shook her head and said to my mother, It's a shame about Mr. White passing away like that last night. Whatever will Dorothy do? Guy Jacopuzzi, how he finds solid ground for the ups and downs. He writes, In late 2009, I diagnosed myself with angina pectoris, a heart condition. I was hospitalized, and I needed cardiac stents in my heart. I wasn't really scared till I was made to sign a consent for a bypass operation. When I asked why, they replied, well, sometimes things go wrong. At this point, I realized I had to face the fact I might not come out of this alive. 
I remembered the resurrection. Here's how my reasoning went. The resurrection is a historical fact that cannot be reasonably refuted. If the resurrection is true, that means, through a bunch of logic not mentioned here, that Jesus really is God. If he's God, he cannot lie. That means everything he said about himself and us is true. Since he affirmed scripture, that means all of scripture is true too. That means I really am a sinner and that Jesus really is the answer. That further means that since I have accepted him as savior, my future with him in heaven is guaranteed. That means I have nothing to worry about, including death slash the end of my life here on earth. Then I relaxed and enjoyed the experience, trying to learn as much as I could. I was conscious during the procedure, so it's the resurrection for me. One person said that they stay grounded by creating passwords that are based on specific Bible verses to encourage them while they are on the internet to help them stay grounded with whatever is on. So, for example, if it's social media, there's a Bible verse that reminds them of their identity in Christ, that they don't have to let the oohs and ahs of everybody else's life um, launch them out into the outer hemisphere. Um and other other things like that, and I think that's a great that's a great way to stay grounded when we're doing things like television or surfing the net. Uh, how how do we stay grounded in those things? And so this person, uh, so that they make a password that reminds them of a specific Bible verse that armors them as they go in. Pastor Mike mentioned that Romans eight twenty eight grounds him that God has a plan and a purpose. But as he so humanly admits, it's actually believing it, that God's word is true sometimes. That's the hard part. But Romans 8.28, oh man, what a good, solid rock to be grounded on for so many situations. It's been a, it's been a really hopeful one for many people. Um, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Richard Johnson mentioned that stepping away from life, it becomes a personal prayer time for him, a time of worship. He does it, of all places, on his motorcycle. But for him, he gets to go out and see the world and see creation, and that helps him feel grounded, a way of praying with your eyes open. Pastor Mike also related that he, when he had watched Pastor Chuck Smith, observed that he seemed to always go and do something with his hands, work with his hands, something construction related. When it seemed that there was just a lot on his mind, he would find himself grounded by doing something physical. Part three, how I find my solid ground. It is the silence of the world that is real. Our noise, our busyness, our purposes, and all our fatuous statements about our purposes, our business, and our noise. These are the illusion. God is present. 
and his thought is alive and awake in the fullness and depth and breadth of all the silences of the world. The Lord is watching in the almond trees over the fulfillment of his words. See Jeremiah 1.11 Whether the plane pass by tonight or tomorrow, whether there be cars on the winding road or no cars, whether men speak in the field, whether there be a radio in the house or not, the tree brings forth her blossoms in silence. Whether the house be empty or full of children, whether the men go off to town or work with tractors in the fields, whether the liner enters the harbor full of tourists or full of soldiers, the almond tree brings forth her fruit in silence. Thomas Merton Where does Pastor Brandon find solid ground for the ups and downs? In prayer. Prayer keeps me grounded. And like two feet on solid ground, there are two ways of praying which I need in balance in order to remain grounded. Now, traditionally, these two kinds of prayer are called cataphatic and apophatic prayer. I'm going to explain both of those to you in the words of Eugene Peterson, who recently, unfortunately, deceased. He says, cataphatic prayer uses icons, symbols, ritual, incense. The creation is the way to the creator. Apophatic prayer attempts emptiness. The creature distracts from the creator. And so the mind is systematically emptied of ideas, image, sensation, until there is only the simplicity of being. In short, he will go on to say, cataphatic prayer is praying with our eyes open, while apophatic prayer is praying with our eyes closed. Now, I do a lot of prayer with my eyes closed. I try every morning to spend some time in silence before God, emptying my heart to Him and filling it up in the silence with what He says to me. I sit with Scripture, and that's where uh, He describes you're emptying, you're seeking emptiness. And this is, of course, not uh, some sort of a Buddhist way, but it's rather trying to uh, not let our thoughts drive the train and let God's word drive the train. Uh, it's an intense focus on him. And I do a lot of that, closing my eyes. And that's very, very important to me. Like the silence from the quote mentioned right before this. But cataphatic prayer, I can really feel, because I don't get to do it every day, but I really can feel a time when I need it. And it's usually in the ups and downs and in the severe ones. Cataphatic prayer is my form of grounding and my rescue. Now, he described cataphatic prayers using icons, symbols, ritual, incense. And he, he, he clarifies by saying the creation leads us to the creator. Now, we, most of you listeners, I assume, because my fellowship, we just don't use a lot of icons, symbols, ritual, incense. We're not very high church at all. Um, but I do use icon symbols, ritual incense. 
And maybe you do too and you're just not aware of it. I use it in the form of nature. When I go out into God's creation, I am praying with my eyes open. And there I have before me God's cathedral filled with sacraments. And a sacrament is something that takes us to God. It's something in creation that we see embodies God and is inside of God at the same time. It's something that takes us to him. It's like a window, if you will. It helps us see him, get to know him, be with him. This is different than an idol, where an idol says, it does not say creation leads me to God. It does say creation is God and God is creation. That's idolatry. A sacrament sees the healthy balance of a God who is here in his creation, but not confined or defined or limited to his creation. He's transcendent. He's bigger and, and above and beyond it. Yet he's not so big and above and beyond everything that we're just lost and forgotten. And he's way over there and we're way over here. No, it's the balance of he's here and he can be experienced in the material world. In other words, matter matters and cataphatic prayer engages with God in such a way. Reading to you again from the deceased Peterson. Matter is real. Flesh is good. Without a firm rooting in creation, religion is always drifting off into some kind of pious sentimentalism or sophisticated intellectualism. The task of salvation is not to refine us into pure spirits so that we will not be cumbered with this too solid flesh. No. We are not angels, nor are we to become angels. The word did not become a good idea or a numinous feeling or a moral aspiration. The word became flesh. It also becomes flesh. Our Lord left us a command to remember and receive him in bread and wine, in acts of eating and drinking. Things matter. The physical is holy. It is extremely significant that in the opening sentences of the Bible, God speaks a world of energy and matter into being. Light, moon, stars, earth, vegetation, animals, man, woman. Not love and virtue, faith and salvation, hope and judgment, though they will come soon enough. Apart from creation, covenant has no structure, no context, no rootage in reality. The word became flesh. It also becomes flesh. Things matter. Yes, friends, matter matters. And this is where I see our Christian theology different than, say, biological evolution, where matter kind of just is its own thing and it's doing its own thing. And I mean, it does matter, of course, to every human, but it's, it's almost an accident, at least in a, in a very simplified way of looking at it. But I fear that we Christians who affirm creation, 
sometimes live like matter doesn't matter. Like it's something disgusting and an accident and a mistake and we just want to get rid of it and move on to our celestial heaven, which is just spiritual and it's somewhere uh, far, far, far away from anything that we can touch. And that's dangerous because what we're doing is we're actually becoming practical evolutionists. And I'm sure you don't like that. But there's a world that God made and meets with us in. And he gave us his presence in communion, in fellowshipping with each other. Um, I've noticed that part of being grounded, I think why cataphatic prayer is big for me, is that sometimes my body just gets out of alignment with my soul, my material being out of alignment with my immaterial being. And sometimes, sometimes we may feel depressed because well, maybe our soul is a little out of balance, but sometimes maybe my body just needs some sleep. Sometimes I just need to get outside and use my feet, use my legs and use my eyes and walk around and smell the incense of the forest and see the beauty of the seasons and hear the crunch of dirt under my feet. And very important to me too is observing the strength and majesty of the unhurried wise tree. To me, trees are sages and they teach us how to be grounded because that's what they are primarily concerned with is being grounded so they can grow tall and strong. And most trees are older than us, at least the ones that are really big. <laughs> Trees have a lot of wisdom. They've seen a lot. We don't see them straining and striving and, oh no, through the ups and downs, they just keep on going with getting those roots in deeper and their branches out further and their crowns up higher. And seeing that always reminds me, while while life feels like it's moving fast and sometimes I'm uncentered and I'm ungrounded and I'm flying at too high of an elevation, by getting out in the slower pace of the tree's kingdom... I'm reminded, silence, everything keeps growing in silence. And it's whether my eyes are open or closed. Part four, want to be grounded? Try digging ditches. Another way we can find solid grounding is by digging. In 2 Kings chapter 3, the king of Moab used to pay tribute to the king of Israel. But when Ahab died, he said, Psh, I'm not paying any more tribute to the kingdom of Israel. So the king of Israel joins a coalition, the king of Judah and the king of Edom, to go make him pay. But on the march to Moab, we read this. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom started out on what proved to be a looping detour. After seven days, they had run out of water for both army and animals. A looping detour. How many times do we set out on a plan? We have a vision. We want something accomplished in life. And somewhere in the middle of 
the journey, we discover we aren't making much progress. And then even worse, we run out of water. Now, the king of Israel is not a very well-grounded person. So he begins to blame God for this. The king of Judah intervenes and says, whoa, maybe we should inquire of a prophet. So Elisha is brought on the scene. Now, as a prophet, Elisha is a very grounded person, as we're going to see. So he speaks to the kings on behalf of Yahweh. And this is what he says. This is what Yahweh says. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. You will see neither wind nor rain, says Yahweh. Yet this valley will be filled with water. You will have plenty for yourselves and your cattle and other animals. Okay, so they're in a dry valley. They're out of water. Yet, without either wind or rain, somehow there's going to be water for them. Now, they could have heard this and said, Okay. But instead, there's an implication that they needed to do something about this prophecy. Water's coming. We either shrug our shoulders and say, But I'm lost. I don't know what to do. Or we can get grounded and dig. Here's what John Corson has to say about this. And I heard him teach this once and it stuck with me. So I looked it up and here I found it in his commentary. He says, In this dry and desert area, the word of the Lord was for the Israelites and Edomites to dig ditches. Only God could give the water but it was up to them to trench the ground. This is such an important principle. You've got to dig the ditches in the dry times, in the hard times. You've got to daily dig the ditches, and the Lord will fill them with water in his time. You might feel like your morning devotions are a rut, as dry as a desert. Dig the ditch anyway. And in the morning, in the Lord's timing, he will fill it with water. It is a principle of God that is irrevocable and absolute. God will fill the ditch, but you must dig it. If the, if the Israelites had only scratched the ground, that's all the water they would have received. The more you dig, the more you'll get. Sometimes it's just plain hard work. But whether it's Bible study, ministry, or prayer, you've got to dig the ditch first. Then the Lord will fill it in due time. May God help us to be those who dig in and prepare for mighty miracles. And so here we are. Maybe we are on this looping detour and we are now seven days short of water. And we want to give up. We want to turn around. We're wondering, what's the point? Friends, that's when we are no longer grounded. We're off center. We're up in altitude somewhere, losing our heads, losing our cool. But what we see here is an invitation. It's a promise. The water's coming. 
So then there's the invitation of, how are we getting ready for it? Are we digging? Are we doing the daily habits and practices of preparing ourselves before God? This is a great way to be grounded. Just keep doing the basic Christian disciplines. Reading scripture, praying, sitting before God in silence to hear his voice, serving, gathering with other real-life people at a real-life church. These are ways we dig the ditches. And one day, if not even today, one day, water will fill the ditch. Whether we've made it shallow or deep, water will fill what we have dug. And this is one way to get grounded. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening.